Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you both stories from the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And each Each week or alternate weeks, I like to bring a guest on the show with me. And as you already know, if you've been listening to some of the season three podcasts, this season is completely dedicated to artists who are in recovery from addiction. So with me today, I have a special guest, Eric Howell, who is an artist as I think I would refer to you as a pop artist. So you can correct me, Eric, if you'd like. And also, I know Eric is a wonderful singer and I believe songwriter as well. So just help me welcome Eric to the show. Thank you very much, Nancy. It's wonderful to be here. Great. So how would you describe your art? You know what? I, uh, I've i never thought of it as pop, nor have I heard it referred to as such, but I kind of like it, actually, because I would say I would describe it as abstract expressionism. However, it's there's certain elements that are definitely pop adjacent. I try to bring in when I do try to represent something on the canvas that's not simply amorphous chaos or what I think is uh, I'd like to think is concerted chaos. There often are pop culture references, so I certainly can get on board with the with the uh, the pop. Uh, uh, uh moniker so great, great. Yeah. and um and i i would also not that you have to classify but your singing is in the genre that i call r&b or at least that's my favorite work that you do is when you hit those really high notes and people <laughs> would not know if they're not um seeing you on video that you're a white male you know it's it's just some of the notes that you hit are remarkable to me <laughs> well again i that's uh, some of the best uh that's some of the best feedback i could ever anticipate i uh, also sort of in keeping with it or Parallel to what you described in the art as pop, I never thought of it as particularly R&B either. But now that you mention it, it's certainly it's there. There's no denying it. And I and I'm I mean, I embrace it. And uh, yeah, I I love I try to be as soulful as possible um, in in the vocal performances. At the same time, there's uh, it's I, there's something I'll never be able to escape is sort of a, uh, a self-aware uh, indie uh, element of it too, where because because I tend to overthink things, which of course is adjacent to uh, you know addiction. Of course, uh, I tend I can never escape a, as much as I might find myself getting lost in the music and get you know and having the just surrendering to the muse. I'll always find myself dragged back to self consciousness about what I'm doing because the, the singing it to me is uh, it's. If I start to think about it too much, it's really, you know, in the whole grand scheme of the cosmos or what have you, it's kind of an absurd endeavor. 
I mean, one that I certainly couldn't live without. But as a, at the same time, I'll never be able to escape sort of uh, winking at the absurdity of what I'm doing as I'm doing it, as good as I might think I'm being at the time. <laughs> if that makes any sense, which I don't think it does. But Well, you know what? I think whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, it does make a lot of sense to me. You know, I, okay. I know that time when I'm overthinking in my art, and it's sometimes really devastating to the expression itself, you know, right. like stopping at a speed bump when I should just be slowing down to you know, think about the direction and why that speed bump is there rather than come to a complete stop, which sometimes has been for years at a time. <laughs> Absolutely. And it just, it's, while we're riffing on this notion or whatever, it's just occurring to me too, that I've all, I've long sought out artists and appreciated most the artists in which their most brilliant creation seems to exist at the nexus of absolute earnestness and irony. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think when I produce, when I am uh, in that zone, I think that's where some of my best work comes out of. Um, they like that combination of words, earnesty and irony. Earnestness and irony. Yes, exactly. Because you, you want to pour your soul into it or whatever. But at the same time, it's at least human. It's it's the overthinker's nature to think, oh, my goodness, what if I'm being absolutely ridiculous at this moment? You know, pour it with over earnestness and, and just coming across as an utter tool. <laughs> and that's where the that's where the the self-aware irony kicks in. Well, you were when, at the start of the interview today about the. Um, Overthinking is an aspect of being an addict. And yeah. of course, the title of the show is, you know, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores comes from a passage in AA literature that says most addicts are liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. And another cultural reference to addiction is this two-sided coin with grandiosity and low self-esteem. Exactly. I think that's, that's where we get in that dialogue in our head. Right. Absolutely. That, that is me to a T. It's, uh, and off, often I think the, the grandiosity is yet another dimension of it is, yeah, the grandiosity is how I think ultimately I fit into the cosmos. I, I think I'm the shit in the grand scheme of things. But I think that uh, uh, the the utter lack of uh, of uh, confidence comes from the fact that no one else recognizes how great I am. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um so tell the audience a little bit, Eric, about your journey with addiction. And particularly because of the tagline of the show, I want to hear about if there was a really dark moment that was when you turned it around or got help for yourself. Certainly. It was, uh, I mean... I'm an introvert. I've always been an introvert at heart. There, were, there have been times when I would never have conceded that to myself even. Because I always, I think as a, as a coping mechanism, I I did I faked a good extrovert. I put on the the extrovert face, and also, and but it was such there was such self deception involved in that that I that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have copped to being an introvert if you would ask me. I think the more I under the more I became, the more aware of myself, my real nature, whatever I I embraced introversion and realized that I thought I recharge when i'm alone and that and that uh real immersion in crowds for any given amount of time seems to drain me and i can 
I can feel the loneliness. Excuse me. I can feel the loneliest when I'm among the biggest group of people that I could possibly be with. Where this is all leading in terms of uh, I, w- I was establishing this so as to say my pattern uh, in addiction and, and my my drug of choice was always alcohol. I really have not even dabbled in anything uh, less uh, socially acceptable, let's say, than that. Um, but I was as an introvert, I would I would always drink alone. I didn't immerse myself in any kind of party culture. I rarely went to bars. Uh, but it was in those shadows, in those uh, private dark places that my uh, addiction really exploded. And uh, just my consumption became ever greater. I Another, another part of uh, my whole journey was that, um, and I was just thinking about this earlier today leading up to uh, talking with you, is um, how I somehow ignorantly... Uh, fostered this notion that uh, of denial that I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic because I was not dealing with any kind of physical dependency. I thought solely because I had dodged the physical uh, dependency bullet that I had dodged becoming an alcoholic. And I just w- happened to be a very heavy drinker. <laughs> but never mind the fact that I could not, I mean, it came to a point where I, re- I literally, my state of existence was either one of uh, borderline incapacitated drunkenness or a redlined anxiety. Uh, it And it just, it came to be um, the, the psychic toll that it took to hide that from uh, well, it was it was my it, my fiance uh, because my sobriety very much uh, coincided with when I, I got married back in uh, back in fall of uh, 2017, and the drinking had become so heavy. And she had to remind me just within the last couple months that she she wasn't pushing me. I, I guess I hit it so well, or um, that while she was concerned about it, and I had conceded to her uh, months prior that I was an alcoholic, and ultimately I wanted to do something about it, but I just didn't see myself early on in my relationship with her as uh, having the wherewithal to go about it. But eventually it became the consumption and the, the cycle of anxiety and drunkenness just became uh, so... Uh, taxing on my on my sanity that I did it, it, what I was re- alluding to her reminded me I was the one who approached her and said I have to go to rehab and uh, so and this was this was within weeks after we got married and uh, so and and then she reminded me too that she took the reins and she was the one who uh, she was the, I, I had found a place out in Austin Texas it looked particularly up my alley it was very it was it advertised itself as having a musical bent to it. Essentially, it seemed like an immersive uh, community of musicians who were looking to go through recovery. It lived up to that to a certain point, not not wholly, not to the degree that I would have been ideal, but it certainly got the job done. And I very much indebted to those folks out there. It was wonderful. But she was the one who got on the phone with them, worked out the financing, because, of course, it wasn't cheap. And uh, and she also reminded me that in the weeks leading up to it, that I went through, all, I played the rationalization game, say, oh, maybe I shouldn't go now. Maybe wait till after the holidays. I don't think it's, I don't think it's feasible at that time. And she, with all the work, I mean, with all the work she had done and geez, all the things, all the, all the conventions I had made to her about my state of mind and how the degree to which I had been hiding, how 
much in hell I essentially was on the inside. Uh, she said, no, you're going. And uh, indeed, on, on Halloween, I got on Halloween 2017. Uh, I got on a plane and landed in uh, in Austin, Texas on November 1st, which I um, and uh, I checked into the rehab there with a B, a blood alcohol count with via the breathalyzer of like, I believe um, 0.24 something. And uh, even though I felt totally sober, <laughs> I felt totally, I remember that night, you know, vividly. And, uh, but I count November 1st as uh, my first day of sobriety and, and my, my sobriety day. Now there's something, also, I, I don't know how clearly I remember this about you, Eric, but I want to ask when you said that you were a heavy drinker, even though yeah. at that time you didn't believe you were alcoholic, what was your consumption at any one time? Uh, oh, at any one time? Well, uh, you no, know, in any one span of drinking, yeah. how much? I was, I was averaging uh, 30 drinks a day would have been a light day. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like if that how been someone a drinks 30 drinks a day and doesn't consider themselves to have a drinking problem? Uh, it, well, by the time it actually, when it got up to that point, I had, to con that's when I had like the, that's when I had the, somehow I got disabused of the notion that one can't be an alcoholic if one doesn't have the physical dependency. Because I could, through through, through circumstances, a couple days I would go, I would go dry and not go through any, not have DTs or anything like that. Surprising, surprising. And, uh, and, but yeah, but when, it, when, when I was at the 30 a day level, I had, yeah, I had acknowledged that I was an alcoholic at that point, but, but still to your point, there were days where I was uh, before that real crest of the wave, if you will. Yeah, I was, I was easily, I was having, uh, I would be drinking a good percentage of that and still not have the realization I was an alcoholic all the all the while hanging on this illusion of immunity from it because I didn't have the physical dependency right and you yeah. know I had a rationalization going when I was young prior to getting sober that I was an alcoholic because I never had hangover. I woke up the next day and I was still drunk. Right, exactly. Yep. I learned much later from a therapist that that was very much a sign of my alcoholism. Exactly, and exactly. That I was very lucky not to have passed from alcohol poisoning because of the amount of I would, I would gear, I was drinking mostly tequila shots and I would gear it so that at 12, I would stop because I didn't feel drunk until I stopped for a period of between half an hour, an hour of drinking. So I would oh, wow. drink 10 or 12 shots of tequila, then stop drinking in order to feel high. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's that I, I hadn't heard that particular, that of that particular phenomenon, but at still at the you know given given the way this disease comes at you from all different angles or whatever I, it totally makes sense to me yeah. uh, i was thinking just earlier today too i was thinking about i think uh, have the uh the real depth and breadth of the dependence the psychological dependence hit me when i was uh babysitting my two nephews who were at the time i believe uh they would have been like five and two and a half or so and i, I woke up and I, I had made it. I had held a lot of anxiety about the babysitting for them. I was held. Uh, their mom and dad, my brother and sister-in-law, um, were. I think they were having a date night, and I said I'd take care of it. And I was with. I was with my wife at the time. Kate was. We weren't married yet, but. Um, 
And I said, okay, what I'm going to vow not to have a drink before 10 a.m. on the Saturday. We, you know, they stayed over Friday night. And I just remembered uh, never being more cognizant of the passing of time than between say, 9.30 and 10 a.m. on that Saturday. And I didn't make it. I, I, yep, I snuck my first drink at uh, 9.47, I believe it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. We're well, talking a lot of years ago, too. And you can remember those details because it was that important and imprinted that much at the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, Eric, one of the other things I like to ask people when we're talking about the dark side of addiction and recovery, what was one of the darker moments during this process, this journey of recovery that you've experienced and obviously managed to get through? The darker moments of recovery. Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, I think it was probably I think it was probably the circumstances when uh, when the pandemic really exploded and the uncertainty of what the world was going to become, the degree a lot of people addicts and non-addicts alike seem to um, seem to throw themselves down the doom rabbit hole in terms of what the world could anticipate at that time. And, uh, and that I got caught up in that anxiety. It's huge. Uh, let's say it last however many years, it's been four years, I guess I'm not, when did it hit? 20, was it 2020, you know, yeah. March, April, 2020 was when we all went into isolation Exactly. And it's been a shitty time for the world ever since. Um, that said, you know, the, in terms of what the word of pe- people envisioning worst case scenarios or whatever, those did not come to pass as mu- mercifully as, as they could have or whatever. But my mind, always, always the doom uh, speculating mind or whatever, always, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, my art is informed by how, how pessimistic and how I'm always envisioning the worst case thing. And that's even in, you know, even in recovery in which my my peace of mind is literally an order of magnitude more or a couple orders of magnitude more than I was in the throes of addiction. I still do that. But anyway, back to your to your point, I think that, that was one of the most trying times and one of the darkest times in my on my recovery path is anticipating what's going to happen. And then to have at the same time, because I was up to that point, I was very active in AA. I was going to at least three or four meetings a week. To have those in-person meetings ripped away at the same time, there was a synergy between the the um, the uh, future tripping of what possibly was going to, you know, what the hell was going to happen in the world. And also having that, what I thought of it as an absolutely essential resource, the import person meetings, taken away at the stead the one-two punch of that um as well and i i mean i i don't know the degree to which well you don't you don't seem to shy away from any topics on this uh yeah. on this topic. <laughs> and, and further compounded by the whole thing was the, the uh the absolute degree of apparent imbecility with which the the president at that point was dealing with the crisis right uh, and or not dealing with the crisis right right or or making it worse seemingly almost by design making it work mm-hmm. um yeah my anxiety was absolutely through the roof at that and uh i at this at the same time i i feel blessed in that i never there seemed it's almost as if the my the degree, my anxiety and yet my ten, and any notion that alcohol would be a short-term remedy for that were total there was no dovetailing in that whatsoever. I didn't think I I somehow, by the grace of God, had managed to uh I'd I'd managed to lose the the 
body memory of what it was like to be drunk. So I didn't have like that anticipation, like sensation in my body of, of what that relief would be like to take that first drink as fleeting as it would be to have, you know, to have the anxiety go away, which I, I knew cerebrally, I knew intellectually that there would be that short term. But uh, in terms of a physical sensation that I could anticipate that the relief to come from that first drink, it wasn't there. Thank God. Because, and I still, to this day, it's not there. Yeah. And because I, that I would, uh, maintaining abstinence at that point would have been a hell of a lot harder if I did not somehow, again, by the grace of God, have uh, not had that body memory. Or, you know, I thought you know, about that a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, I thought, what if this had happened when I was in the throes of my active addiction? how much worse it would have gotten. Oh, God, and yeah. Another thing I thought of was having been the single mom of a child with severe ADHD. I thought, oh, dear God, I'm so glad he's grown up. You know? oh, <laughs> I oh my God. imagine trying to work from home with a hyperactive five, six-year-old. You know, it just blew my mind away. I'm so glad. I had a client at the time of the pandemic say, you know, I was born for social isolation. You know, for her, right. anxiety was lifted by not having to leave the house. Right. Right. And I, I did. I had an L is maybe maybe my overall anxiety uh, um, tapestry was tempered by that a little bit because as an introvert, yeah, I social obligations. I mean, hell, I had anxiety leading up to our talk today, <laughs> but I, most of that, for what it's worth, most of that is washed away in spades. So, <laughs> well, but and one thing I'd love to add there too is that you know I get what I think of as nervous before giving a public talk. I don't get nervous before the interviews for the podcast any longer. Right. Uh, and I remember learning at one point that in neuroscience, the part of the brain that's activated by what we call anxiety is very similar to anticipation. And so if I can look at my nervousness as I'm anticipating this event, then it's better. You know, it's not like I'm anxious about this event event puts a kind of shadow over it all. I love that. I love that. And that's very much in keeping with the notion. I mean, it's sort of the pop culture notion, but I think one with a lot of wisdom that all your desires are on the other side of fear. And I, I yeah, nothing. It's the rare. There's probably a direct proportion between that which is most worthwhile achieving and the most scary it is to endeavor to try to achieve. Right. So let's talk about the light side a little bit. Um, <laughs> going into the act of addiction, are there memories, escapades, things that you're willing to share or a situation that you recall where it was other than living it? really funny story to tell later oh God, that is a good question again um i sort of in key, once again with the introversion i i don't i don't have a lot of war stories like interesting war stories um it, and I, I i i find myself at a loss trying to come up with one you know i was thinking about this man i interviewed that um was going through withdrawal and his one of his family members had paid for a campsite and he started to steal from other campsites around him 
and <laughs> bring it back to his tent. And on one of these trips back to the tent with his backpack loaded with other people's possessions, he saw blue lights around his tent area. And <laughs> so what did he do? He stole a girl's bicycle and tried to escape from the police on a little pink bicycle with a basket you know and the guy's oh like big dude so that just always cracked me up the image um cracked me up right no i um what it, i remember it, it's i did some one of the points that i've uh one of the more embarrassing yet yeah, absolute drunkenness moments that i remember from uh from uh drinking was it was my my uh, me and my brother my I my brother and uh, our sort of a mutual very good friend took my dad who was celebrating his seventy fifth birthday to a game at Fenway and um, <laughs> I and then I remember leaving the game I had uh, yeah I had one of these wacky little uh, uh, clandestine um, flexible flasks you know so you can essentially you can sneak a good a good uh, you know half liter of, of booze into a, into a bit a public event like a baseball game or what have you and i was we went we were at a convenience store probably buying beer after you know what you all the while i probably had 20 drinks out of my belt at that point still managing to to, to walk around fine and you know keep up semi-coherent conversation with my with my buds or whatever but uh I remember being at the at the store, at the convenience store, probably uh, right on Yaki Way or what have you, and uh, purchasing the beer, and then managing somehow the cap came off of the of the uh, flex, the clandestine uh, uh, my little booze stash or whatever, and it managing to spew vodka all over this gentleman's counter in the uh, in, in the convenience store. And my, my friend like uh, was like, "Oh my God, let's help him clean it up," and it's just and. Just, I mean, it, it, the guy's face actually was very, it was almost, you know, in theory, he could have, he would have been pissed and like, get the hell out of here. But I think he, he assessed the patheticism of the whole situation. It was, and his face was more of one of pity than anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And what is one of the lighter moments in your sobriety journey? You know, uh, something that you're either really proud of or just was a joyous moment. Oh, uh, the birth of my of my daughter who just turned two the other day. Uh, just yeah, I mean, just it, pretty much a day does not go by in which uh, almost like like a one two punch. It doesn't occur to me how I could not possibly deal with how uh, involved raising her is a and b how. I could not possibly appreciate and find the depths of love that she has led me to uh, if I was still if I was still drinking. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think we even have the capacity to have that kind of connection when we're using drinking or yeah. using other drugs. Right, right. Beautiful. She would not. No, no one. Thank you. No one. No innocent soul deserves to would have deserved to have the me at the height of my drinking as a parent. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I like, you know, at the end of that sentence, I went back to the beginning. No innocent yeah. soul, you know, like yeah. that. <laughs> right. So, Eric, how has recovery impacted your art? That's, uh, I think, I, well, I, I think it's made its scads better all over the place. And that's very much contrasted with what I was, I mean, I think it was a rationalization. One of my whole quiver of rationalizations was, oh, what if I get sober? Then I won't have. Hey, I won't have any grist for the mill, you know, uh, from the depression, you know, the 
the terror and the depression that drinking brings me or whatever. I need that to fuel my art. And also, I think, you know, even a more direct conduit between the chemical and the, the creation, you know, I think I think it just fuels it directly. And I and I so I thought, oh, my God, I can't possibly as, as painful as this existence is. I need it to fuel my art, which is what some of the biggest bullshit one could possibly, you know, try to feed to oneself. Uh, my art, if, if anything, it's gotten scads darker since I've started drinking or whatever. But that's in contrast. That's, I don't want to say it's a character I play, but I mean, because I certainly have that darkness in my soul. I mean, you know, that, uh, that pessimism, that sense of, uh, of the dark in the universe in my soul. But that's, it's a place that I, it's a place I'm more in control of, of uh, how I visit it and how, how often I visit it, the nature of our visits and how easily I can extract myself from it. Whereas it was my, it was my prison drink. Right. right. You just reminded me of a, a client's, a phrase that a client used about addiction being trapped in an unlocked cage. Yes. Yes. I love, I think, I think you mentioned that to me once. I love that then. I love it now. Yeah. Yeah. But- Prison imprisonment within ourselves. Right. Cool. Well, I I don't know if I shared with you prior to um, I'm about to share now that during this season I first interviewed a man named Russ Coleman who's part of a cooperative in England in Newcastle, England called Artists in Recovery, and they have agreed to do an exhibition virtually of all the guests during this season. So if you'd like to be part of that, um, it will be for all of the artists to exhibit their work and also to sell their work without any commission taken by the gallery, if you Oh, that's fantastic. I'd love to be part of that. Thank you. I'm really hoping that you know, that's a boon for many of the artists. And is there anything else that you'd like to add, Eric? Maybe ways that people can find you if they want to see your art on the web or anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, certainly. Actually, I am. Uh, my, I do have a dedicated web page to my art, uh, Eric How, uh, Eric dot com. Uh, my, the, so it's E-R-I-K-H-O-W-E-L-L, artist, we all know how to spell artist, dot com. Um, that said, I do, I temp, uh, for the moment, I'm having an issue with it, but it should, I'm anticipating it getting back up within a couple of days. Also, on on Facebook, um, uh, you, I have a page on there, Eric Howell, I believe, yeah, it's Eric Howell Artist as well on there. I think also paintings by Eric Howell will get one there. And then on the music side of things, uh, Eric Howell, singer-songwriter. Uh, you'll find some just uh, extemporaneous performances of uh, some of my work on there. Uh, some of my, uh, both, orig- it's about 50% original songs and 50%, uh, I'd like, as I'd like to think of them, innovative covers of, uh, of uh, standards and then some obscure, more obscure tunes as well. Um, so one last question. Do you have a phrase that comes from your favorite lyric? Oh, uh, ooh. Ooh, I know, I... <laughs> Oh, but yes, I, I pride myself on having these things on the tip of my mind. But I, did, I, I think it's essentially, it's almost as akin to a long jam. You know, so many are flooding at the same time that not a single one is getting through. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Nancy, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I, I, That's all right. This is all right. What about lyrics from one of your own songs? That I was, believe me, I was, I was 
combing through and cerebrally the, that sample as well and, and still not coming up with anything. Um, give me a moment here. You can edit this, correct? <laughs> um, well, I actually, I have a refrain. Of the chorus of one of my songs and the title thereof is Numb to the Light. And that, and, uh, that was, that's a song that I wrote, Jesus probably close to uh 25 years ago and i and i think uh the inspiration for that was um essentially feel feeling that my soul was changing feeling this was uh this is when i first was uh co yeah my even somehow we managed not to touch on this but uh, i guess because we've talked about so many other interesting things but yeah my addiction has as with so many people, dovetailed with uh, depression and, well, I've alluded to the anxiety. But uh, when I first was realizing, and yeah, totally concurrent with uh, one of the first escalations in my consumption and uh, and how in wallowing and drinking, uh, I realized that I wasn't feeling uh, sunlight, same, it, it, just ambient sunlight the same way. It's like it I could as I could count on you know growing up at least to find some solace in being outside and being uh, immersed in sun and uh, I was realizing that I was losing my capacity to feel that and have it buoy my soul and that was a very scary thing and it was there was also there was also feelings of uh, almost I was dealing with some dissociation and, and everything else at the time but that led me to um, to write the song numb to the light which was essentially about uh the loss of the capacity to simply absorb that which you took for granted as being all around you pre or what i had previously taken for granted as being just something i was immersed in and could and could always say at least we have sunlight but no it was, it was like there was a disconnect between it landing on my body and my being able to process it as something redemptive in life and uh and things just went downhill from there so i still i still love that song and i still play it earnestly but i i think it's probably probably my interpretations of it nowadays are infused a little bit i help maybe it even warrants a uh a, uh epilogic if that's an adjective uh new verse sort of talking about having uh transcended that the depths of despair that led to writing it initially and when you talked about the birth of your child you know talk about the infusion of sunlight into your life you know the joy Absolutely. terrific thank you so much eric i it's such a pleasure to talk to you again and to see you today fantastic nancy do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 